Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Visual Politics Podcast. This is the audio version of a video that we originally released on our YouTube channel on the 17th of February 2019. Its title was The New Friendship Between Israel and the Arabic Countries. If you like this podcast, if you're enjoying it, why not go over and leave us a review? Let us know how we're doing on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts, really. But for now, let's just roll into this podcast. Something is happening in Israel. Now, I don't think it would be an understatement to say that the state of Israel has been in the spotlight since it was founded in 1948. We're talking about 70 years of war with their Arab neighbors, seven decades of severe tensions due to the Palestinian situation. 70 years of international isolation only mitigated by the strong support of the United States. But hold on a second, because all of that is changing. In recent years, Israel has gone from being as vilified as Lindsay Lohan to being as exalted as Natalie Portman. And you might think I'm exaggerating, but have a look at what 2018's number one villain had to say about the country. This quote comes from the New York Times. Saudi prince says Israelis have right to their own land. The turnaround is so dramatic that the Israeli national anthem has made it to, wait for it, Abu Dhabi. See for yourself. In October of 2018, at the medal ceremony of an international judo tournament in Abu Dhabi, the Israeli national anthem was played for the first time ever in the United Arab Emirates. The woman you see crying emotionally is the Israeli Minister of Culture and Sports, Miri Regeva, former Brigadier General in the 2006 Lebanon War. Certainly something of an about-face, isn't it? This is especially true when we take into account that, to this day, not one country on the Arabian Peninsula officially recognizes Israel as a state. But that's not the end of it. Around the same time, the Israeli Prime Minister himself, Benjamin Netanyahu, made a secret visit to the Sultan of Amman. In the past few months, several Israeli ministers have visited the Dubai Emirate and have even met with Qatari representatives. Yep, you really did hear that correctly. So how on earth did Israel achieve such diplomatic advances in such a short time? What do the Palestinians think of all of this? And perhaps the most important question of all is an enduring, peaceful resolution finally in sight for this region that has spent decades as the planet's powder keg. Today on Visual Politics, we're going to answer all of these questions. But first, let's rewind for a bit of history. A difficult birth. May the 14th, 1948, Ben-Gurion proclaims the independence of the State of Israel. The very next day, this brand new nation is invaded by the armies of five Arab countries. But why was there this rapid and dramatic reaction? Well, it turns out that since the late 1800s, Jews had been buying up land in Palestine, which at the time was under the control of the Ottoman Empire. In the late 19th century, anti-Semitism was running rife in Europe, so more and more Jewish people were emigrating to the traditional land of their ancestors. After the First World War, however, Palestine was put under a mandate, leaving the running of the country in the hands of the UK. And did that solve the problem? Eh, not exactly. If the British put forward policies favoring the Jews, the Arabs reacted with riots and protests of all kinds. And on the other hand, if the British favored the Arab interests, Jewish armed groups leapt into action. <music> 
20 years later, World War I further complicated the situation. As you can imagine, the Jewish exodus to Palestine only increased in the wake of the horrors of the Holocaust. What's more, it highlighted the need for a dedicated Jewish state. Meanwhile, in Palestine, the situation became increasingly unstable. Overwhelmed by events, the British authorities handed control over to the United Nations. And that chain of events brought about one of the most contentious resolutions in the history of the United Nations, and that's Resolution 181. With this resolution, the UN proposed dividing Palestine into two separate states. The first, of roughly 14,000 square kilometers, would be controlled by a Hebrew government with a Jewish population of around 60%, but the remaining 40% would be Arab. The second, slightly smaller state of around 11,000 kilometers would be controlled by the Palestinian people, with a Jewish population of barely 2%. At the same time, Jerusalem, Bethlehem, and the Holy Lands would be placed under an international mandate. The Jews accepted the resolution, the Arabs did not. That's why, the day after the proclamation of Israel's independence in 1948, the country was invaded by Egypt, Syria, Lebanon, Iraq, and Jordan. And with that began a conflict that's been dragged out for seven decades. Israel, despite being a fledgling nation and facing the armies of five countries, was the clear victor. And this victory has allowed Israel to expand its territory considerably. It was also the first victory of the newly created Israel Defense Forces, which went on to become one of the most powerful armies in the world today. But this wouldn't be the only war between Israel and the Arab countries. Far from it. In 1967, the so-called Six-Day War took place, during which Israel took control of the Golan Heights, East Jerusalem, the West Bank, the Gaza Strip, and the Sinai Peninsula. It was just six days. It was such a humiliating defeat for the Arab countries that they started planning their revenge. Six years later, during the Yom Kippur Jewish holiday, Israel was attacked by the Egyptian and Syrian armies. This time, the war didn't last six days, but 19, and the result was practically the same. A clear and rapid victory for the Israeli army. This people, small as it is, surrounded as it is by enemies, has decided to live. That was Golda Meir, Prime Minister of Israel, speaking about the Yom Kippur War on NBC News in 1978. It was possibly as a result of this war that the Egyptian president, Anwar al-Sadat, made one of his most famous statements. Russians can give you arms, but only the United States can give you a solution. Anwar al-Sadat, Egyptian president. Sadat takes the first shot. 1978 marked a turning point in Israel's relationship with its neighbors. The Egyptian president, Anwar al-Sadat, traveled to Jerusalem, recognized the existence of Israel as a state before the Hebrew parliament, and got ready to negotiate a peace treaty. You want to live with us in this part of the world. In all sincerity, I tell you, we welcome you among us with full security and safety. I want to live to see that day. A peace between you and us. A peace between all our neighbors and us. That's how, with a little mediation from Jimmy Carter, the Camp David agreements were forged. Israel returned the Sinai Peninsula to Egypt, and Egypt became the first Arab country to have diplomatic relations with the Jewish state. 
our path, let us pledge to make the spirit of Camp David a new chapter in the history of our nations. Thank you, Mr. President. While Sadat may have taken the crucial first step, he paid a very high price for it. Just three years later, he was assassinated by Islamic radicals. Even so, Egypt stuck to the terms of the Camp David agreements. Now, you might be wondering now, well, what was the outcome of these agreements for Israel? Well, basically, two things happened. First, Jewish settlement began to emerge in the West Bank and Gaza, and this continues to be a sticking point and one of the main obstacles to peace between the neighboring states. Secondly, there was a huge increase in violence and terrorist attacks as Hezbollah and the Palestinian Liberation Organization organization under Yasser Arafat's leadership gathered force. At this time, both organizations they were operating out of Lebanon, which led to Israeli military intervention in that country on two separate occasions. The Arab-Israeli conflict didn't let up. Despite the conflicts, Jordan also recognized the Jewish state in the 1990s. This was during the time of the Madrid and Oslo negotiations where progress was made towards Palestinian self-government. Up until that point, Palestine's power to make and implement its own policies had been very limited in practice. That may explain the years of prolonged tension and be the reason that the conflict is yet to come to a satisfactory resolution. We've often wondered if the conditions that once made a successful coexistence possible could be repeated. That was Felipe González, Prime Minister of Spain, speaking in Madrid in 1991. Cold War in a Hot Region for those who regularly follow visual politics, this might not come as a surprise to you. The Middle East is experiencing its own version of the Cold War. The clash between Riyadh and Tehran has reached an unprecedented level. This Cold War has intensified since the end of 2017, when Saudi Arabia, the Arab Emirates, Bahrain, and Egypt imposed an almost total economic blockade on Qatar because of its relations with Iran and also for its support of the Muslim Brotherhood. By the way, this group is also very closely linked with Hamas in Palestine. Hamas, in turn, maintains very close relations with Qatar. This quote is from Haritz. Hamas pays Gaza clerks after receiving $15 million from Qatar. But nowadays in the Middle East, having good relations with Qatar, it will cost you dearly. This quote is from Reuters. Egypt court sentences Mercy to 25 years in Qatar's spy case. All right, so hold on a second. Egypt, Qatar, you're probably thinking right now, Simon, what on earth does any of this have to do with Israel? This makes no sense. Well, the fact is that this Arab Cold War provides Israel with a rather unique opportunity. So let's break it down. Israel is a declared enemy of Iran and vice versa. For Jerusalem, the Ayatollah's government is their arch enemy. And now you've got the old saying, My enemy's enemy is my friend. So that means suddenly Israel has become a potential ally for Riyadh, and a very important ally indeed. And there's more here. The Arab countries want Washington's support at all costs. And so here's a question. What would please the White House more than Arab nations becoming close to the Jewish state? I mean, it's just a no-brainer for them. And if we add to all of that the fact that many Arab capitals are getting tired of Palestine and of Hamas's ties with Qatar, then this looks like a done deal. That's why when Australia suddenly announced that it recognized Jerusalem as the Israeli capital, we saw reactions like this. This quote is from Al Jazeera. Bahrain FM defends Australia's decision on Jerusalem. But hold on, don't think that this is just about geopolitics. On this occasion, money is also playing a key role. So let's take a look at that. Business as usual. 
We've mentioned this in several videos. Over the last two decades, Israel's economy has skyrocketed. The country has become a world leader in technological innovation, and now, to top it all off, it has discovered huge deposits of natural gas off its coast. So now, we're beginning to see headlines like this. From Reuters. Egyptian firm to buy $15 billion of Israeli natural gas. Yeah, we're talking about the most significant economic agreement ever achieved between these two countries. But Israel's economic ties with the Arab world, they go much further than that. You see, while the Gulf countries may not officially recognize the Israeli state, they do recognize their technological superiority, especially in the areas of defense and security. And this has far-reaching consequences. In the midst of the Arab Cold War, Israeli technology has become highly prized. Indeed, so much so that there are strong indications that Israel is already supplying technological equipment to Saudi Arabia, while the Saudi secret services are sharing information with the Israeli intelligence agency Mossad. Relations indeed seem to be so good that according to US sources, Saudi Arabia may have bought part of the Israeli missile defense system technology known as the Iron Dome. Now, to be fair, Israel has denied this, but you know, in this type of business, discretion certainly rules. There is an alignment of Israel and other countries in the Middle East that would have been unimaginable 10 years ago. Certainly in my lifetime, I never saw anything like it. And I'm the same age as the state of Israel, more or less. So it's an extraordinary thing. Benjamin Netanyahu. These days, visits from the highest Israeli authorities to many Arab countries are turning into a common event. Significant trade agreements they are being signed, and security and defense ties are at unprecedented levels. So essentially, Arab and Israeli relations seem to be getting better and better, with plenty of nods and winks between the main players. One example of this would be the Saudi government's decision to allow commercial flights to Israel to cross Saudi airspace for the first time in 70 years. Of course, though, all of this has a downside. Dealing with democratic countries is not the same as dealing with dictatorships that sometimes seem to be stuck in the Middle Ages. You may get nasty surprises like this one. From the New York Times. Israeli software helped Saudis spy on Khashoggi, lawsuit says. Anyway, that's how things stand today. Everything points to the likelihood that the Arab-Israeli conflict could soon become a thing of the past. The only remaining question is, will we see a solution to that core Palestinian problem? So I really hope you enjoyed that episode of the podcast. This was originally a video that aired on our YouTube channel. If you'd like to get stuff right up to date as it comes out, please do search Visual Politic. That's politic with a K, one word, in YouTube, and you will catch all of our videos. Also, if you like this, please do consider leaving us a review wherever you get your podcasts. We really do appreciate it. And as always, I'll see you next time.